Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with to the book of Colossians. We're working our way through this wonderful epistle and enjoying our time with the Apostle Paul and the church in Colossae. And I feel like they're close friends now. We've certainly stayed more than three days, so we must be family, or maybe not. But nonetheless, we are enjoying the richness of this beautiful epistle, this deep, deeply doctrinal epistle. You know, it's interesting to me, people will say sometimes that um, I don't want to hear about doctrine. I just talk to me about Jesus. Well, I am. And there is a deep, deep pool of doctrine related to the work and person of Jesus Christ. There's much to know and much to understand about him. And that's, of course, what Paul is doing. He has to take this approach because of what has taken place in the church there in Colossae with a false teacher who has come into the midst of the congregation and is undermining their confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes them back and takes them back to who they were and what Christ has done and what Christ will continue to do and, and, and then speaks to them practically about what the Christian life looks like, how, it, how we are to live as the redeemed of God. And so we are going to continue to unpackage these passages today, looking at verses 7 and 8 uh, today and, and continuing to move forward through this chapter 3. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you, and as we just sang, we, um, if it had not been for you, we would not have turned to you. you. We did not choose you, but you chose us. We know from Scripture that that took place before the very foundation of the world, that you set apart for yourself a people that would be peculiar to you, set apart to be salt and light in a dark world. And we rejoice that we are known by you, and we, re- we rejoice that you loved us first. And thank you for that. Thank you for the grace that you've extended to us and sparing us from um, your justice and the wrath associated with it and the judgment attendant with that. Thank you for your great grace and mercy. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us today. We rejoice in this gloriously beautiful day that you've given to us, the bright sunshine and uh, the blue sky and the, even the wonders of, of, the, of, the, of the winter and all that's on display. This is your handiwork. And we rejoice that we're able to even glorify you and rejoice in this fallen creation. We look forward to that day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we can't even begin to imagine what that will be like. And we wait for that, and we look forward to that. Until that time, we proclaim your death until you come, and we communicate the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would bless that endeavor today, that our hearts would be kindled afresh, that our zeal for Christ would be made new, and that we would move forward in our walk and our love of Jesus Christ because of all that he has done for us, this great message that is contained in the gospel, how we've been delivered from sin by the finished work of Christ, and we can rest confidently in all that he has done. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of the word, May the Holy Spirit be present here today, opening our hearts and minds to understand and comprehend the things that you have for us in Colossians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, we read as follows. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set, or as we know, fix your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Well, last week we took the time to consider this issue that's communicated to us in verse 6 regarding God's wrath and understanding that we are spared from that. There is the principle that we understand in Scripture of, of that being removed, being born by Christ, the principle of expiation, the doctrine of expiation, that, that's, that wrath being carried away, moved away outside of the camp, if you will, reaching back into the book of Leviticus with regard to the example that is given to us of this principle through the two sacrifices that are offered, um, one bearing the penalty of sin, death, the other one carrying away the wrath of God outside of the camp. And so we have been spared that, and Paul emphasizes that in verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience by contrasting the believers, the redeemed of God, with those who are outside of Christ, the unregenerate, if you will. And in verse 7 he says, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also, and he begins to list out then another list of, of non-desirable virtues, if you will, that the Christian needs to be attentive to. And so today I want to continue talking about the idea of what Paul is communicating here in this kind of once-but-now motif that we see in verse 7 and verse 8. And this issue of sin... Paul here is, of course, concerned with some type of sin that's taking place in the Colossae church. Apparently, there is some evidence of these things going on amongst the believers there in Colossae. And so Paul wants to address that from the standpoint of contrasting what they once were and what they can now do now that they're in Jesus Christ by putting sin to death, mortifying sin. Killing it, hacking it to pieces, as we have talked about before, which is what mortification speaks to. And it also want, he also wants to encourage them by, by reminding them of, of what they once were and what they are now in terms of Jesus being in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon writes the following, speaking to this idea, Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, wilt thou play with the fire? What? When thou hast already been between the jaws of the lion, wilt thou step a second time into his den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all thy veins once, and wilt thou play upon the hole of the snake, and put thy hand upon the spider's den a second time? Oh, be not so mad, so foolish. Did sin ever yield thee real pleasure? Didst thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to thine old drudgery and wear the chain again, if it delight thee. But inasmuch as sin did never give thee what it promised to bestow, but deluded thee with lies, be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free, and let the remembrance of thy ancient bondage 
forbid thee to enter the net again. Well, as only Spurgeon can say it, and here Paul, too, I think, is doing something similar by contrasting and reminding them of what they once were in verse 6. He says, Lord, it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also went once walked when you were living in them. Here in verse 7, Paul teases out the reality of the transformative power of regeneration. There is a consequence to salvation. Something happens when God saves us. And for Paul, the identifying marker for one who is genuinely born again is to leave behind, to put to death those sins in which they once walked, those sins that were attendant with a life outside of Christ. And so we see the cause and effect of a life in Adam versus the life in the Spirit. As in Adam, we act like Adam. We are bound to a sinful nature. We are, as we talked about in the opening this morning, totally depraved. We are outside of God and outside of his family. We are condemned. We stand rightly under his justice and can expect his wrath and judgment. But now as new creation in Jesus Christ, we have a different life. We have a life that is in the spirit. And for me today, what I want you to understand and what Paul is doing here by teasing out the contrast is driving home the mental idea or the attitude of having gospel gratitude. To be grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for you. And under that gratitude being driven by contrasting you with what you once were. That's so very important. We'll see in verse 8 that he says, but now you also put them all aside. He says that, not giving them some task that they could never perform, but fully expecting that they will want to do that out of gospel gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done. The idea being here, and as I heard a preacher recently say, is that the gospel permeates the full nature, the full features of who we are. It reaches into our mind, as we know from verse 2 of chapter 3. It impacts the way that we live and we walk by extending itself into our fingertips and the choices that we make. We live a life of gratitude because we understand the significance of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel. How is it that God would even save me? How is it that he saved me? By what means was my salvation accomplished? The tendency on our part is to forget who we are by nature. Our tendency is to look into ourselves and find something that allows us to take some credit for our own salvation. And that occurs subtly as well by us oftentimes tending to put faith in our faithfulness rather than in Jesus Christ. And so we have to be so very, very careful. It is easy to be ensnared in this trap that Satan often lies for us. Of course, He wants us to be enraptured with our own righteousness. He wants us to be enthralled with our own piety. And he wants us to rest in that place, knowing that's robbing Christ of his glory. So for Paul, what he is doing here is he's 
taking the Colossians back to a place in order to elevate their minds back towards Jesus Christ. He says, when you lived in them. So by contrast, he's reminding of who they once were. That is, when the cause of sin by the old Adam, or that inbred corruption, lived and reigned in you. So when he uses that phrase... And in them you also once walked. And when you were living in them, think about the comprehensive nature of the language that Paul is using in verse 7. You are talking about a state of being that is perpetual, absent, a force from the outside. The language that Paul uses in verse 7 is significant. Teasing back into verse 6, reaching back to the picture of the sons of disobedience, he says in verse 7, and in them you also once walked. That's how you lived. That's how you thought. That's what you desired. That's who you were by nature. When you were living in them. He could have just said when you walked in them. Well, that would have been enough perhaps. But he, he wants to drive the home, home the message because as we sense who we were, our joy will be greater towards Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is my strength. What sustains me through this life? What moves me forward into a fallen and dark world? It is the joy of his salvation. It is his redemption of me. It is being one who has been taken out of the fowler's net, who has been relieved from the trap the snare, the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13. Indeed, Paul would say in Colossians 1.13 that we have been rescued. Oftentimes, I think Christians need to think more in line of needing to be rescued. Ah, it wasn't so bad. My ankle was only caught. I could have simply reached down and, with my free will, freed myself whenever I felt the urge to do so. No, not at all. You were bound in that. But Paul says to me this. You're no longer a son of disobedience. You're no, one, no longer a, a, a child of Satan in that context. And that corruption that you once knew is now weakened and being mortified by you through the new life given to you at your regeneration. We've talked about this before. The, the picture of a new identity and a new capacity. You have new desires now. And Paul is simply saying, you can now live in a manner and you ought to want to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. Not to get saved, but to rejoice in your salvation. To live in the strength of your redemption. So we see then that Paul is juxtaposing, one of my favorite words, <laughs> contrasting, comparing, teasing out the distinct difference between two positions, the two very different ways of living. He uses the words walk and live in verse 7. And there are only two ways to walk and live in this world, right? Either as a son of Adam or a child of Christ. It's a matter of power and operation. It's a matter of power and operation. Life proceeds, and operations suitable to that life follow, as seen here. 
And, of course, in Galatians 5.25. So let's, let's get ready because lots of verses today. Good stuff. We use God's word to interpret God's word, to amplify, to help illuminate, to illustrate. So Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Let's go back to verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. Now, now, so Paul is basically doing the same thing. I just love the way the Bible works together and in terms of the message and how this theme is woven through so many different passages. So look what Paul says. Galatians is a very important book from the standpoint of understanding the gospel and the true meaning of the gospel, that the gospel is not connected to works of righteousness. And Paul speaks very strongly about those who would communicate that in, the, in chapter 1. He even calls out Peter for, for buying into that lie. So Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But, so that there's that, here's that once but now motif again that you're going to see in scripture. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Where have you heard these words before? Anybody have a guess? What verse in chapter 3? Verse 5, right? So Paul, again, is teasing out for us what it, what it looks like to be living in the flesh. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not Inherit the kingdom of God. Those are, those are sobering words. It's the same idea that we find in verse 6 of Colossians 3. Here in, Colossians, in Galatians 5, Paul illuminates, he expands the list, if you will, and, and brings back to us the sober reminding of what we once were. And look what he does. But, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let's talk about that for a minute. That's mortification, is it not? Now those who belong to Christ Jesus do something. They are enabled to do this very thing. They put to death, and Paul uses the very incredibly vivid picture of crucifixion to tease out the dramatic nature of mortification, of our calling to treat sin as it ought to be treated, something that is against God, that God despises and hates, and is contrary to the character of a thrice holy God, and therefore contrary to the character of those whom he has saved. Do you see this? Now those who belong, and we really do belong when we understand the full nature of our redemption, 
taken out of the bondage to sin, brought into the realm of Christ's kingdom by and through the work of Jesus Christ. We crucify, we put to death the flesh with its passions and desires, the things that drive us and the consequential action from them. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. For Paul, it's axiomatic. One who has been saved, one who has been born again, will necessarily demonstrate the reality of that conversion, the mighty act of God, the mighty power of God to save, surely is going to change us. We're not going to remain, as the false teachers would say, living the life that we lived before we were saved. That's what the false teachers do. We see that from 2 Peter chapter 2. They communicate to people that they can live however they want. And indeed, they encourage them to do so. And they revel in it. And they, they take part in it. And they lead people astray that way. But Paul will say to the, us this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And so we see here this, this power and operation. The power of the indwelling Holy Spirit results in a necessary operation in our lives. Demonstrated by the way we live and the way we walk. So Paul is teasing out this contrast here in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 6 and verse 7 and in verse 8. He wants us to see this. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. That's the reality of regeneration. Those who live in sin, walk in sin. Those who live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Now, this is not to say that Christians never sin. I'm not teaching some heretical form of perfectionism, that you're going to reach some elevated state of perfection and conquer sin. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that the predominant pattern of the redeemed's life is to be walking in the Spirit and to be controlled by the Spirit. And we do that joyfully, not begrudgingly. Oh, bother. Here we go again. I got to go to church. I got to witness. I, I can't watch that. No. We do it out of gratitude, gospel gratitude for what Christ has done for us. Paul here is contrasting the dramatic change wrought by the Spirit in our lives due to our union with Christ. So remember... At the beginning of this chapter, we talked about how important the union, our union with Christ was to Paul. We're talking about root and fruit, internal and external consequences. The root in Christ, the fruit walking in the Spirit. In Adam, the root is Adam. The, the resulting fruit is what? Sin, habitual sin, bondage to sin, reveling in sin, not caring about sin, a life of sin, an attitude of sin, that type of thing. And so Paul is contrasting the dramatic change wrought by the Spirit in our lives due to our union with Jesus Christ. The Colossians' former state of living in sin is contrasted to the new state of the very same person who is now dead to sin. So the point of the contrast is to point out that as renewed born-again people, we stop living like we did when we were unsaved or as the unsaved would live. That, that's That's beautiful. This new state, of this is the very same person. Think about that for a minute. In verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and them you also once walked. That's who they were. 
Paul here speaking to the amazing regenerative work of the Holy Spirit and the transformative nature of it. That is going to instill in me a wonderful sense of gratitude to Christ for what he has done, which then moves me forward to live for him. I'm not being beaten up by the law. I'm not being told to, to get, I'm not giving you a certain list of things and you always trying to live up to a particular list of particular ideas, but to simply live a life that reflects the transformation that has been wrought in you by and through the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you also used to practice these sins when you used to live that sort of life. That's basically what verse 7 says. You also used to practice these sins when you used to live that sort of life. You don't live that sort of life anymore. And Christians need to understand that. You are no longer who you once were. As I noted last week, Paul is using a once-but-now motif to drive home the significance of what it means to be born again to live in the power of Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. So as to the new state of the converted and regenerate, several things, four things importantly, are to be observed, I think. Number one, four things that as to the state of the converted and regenerate are to be observed. Number one, it is useful... For the redeemed to recall our former state under sin. It is useful for the redeemed to recall our former state under sin. Oh, pastor, quit talking to me about sin. I want to be happy. Give me a happy list. I want a happy message. I'm giving you a happy message. This is the best message I can give you. You're no longer that guy. You're no longer that girl. You've been changed. You've been bought. You've been rescued. You've been transferred. So he says, it is, so as we say, it is useful for the redeemed to recall our former state under sin. There's not enough of that in preaching today. The Puritans were always good about this. They were referred to as physicians of the soul. Why? Well, if you pick up a book by a Puritan, typically chapter one is about how bad you were. Chapter 2, it's still how bad you are. (laughs) Chapter 3, it's how bad you're going to continue to be. And chapter 4, and the rest of the book is, how wonderful is Jesus Christ? They, They always take you back to that. And so for Paul, this is so counter to what we see today predominate in evangelical churches We rarely talk about this. We rarely talk about sin. We rarely talk about our bondage to sin. We rarely rejoice over our freedom from bondage to it. And so Paul is doing this. Why would Paul do this? Paul's not doing this to beat them up, but rather to encourage them. This is is not a downer message. Paul, Paul isn't trying to make them feel bad. He's simply saying to them, think about it, friends. This is what you used to be. This is who you once were. You're no longer that. And so um, something to be observed, the first one was it is useful for the redeemed to recall our former state. Secondly, we as believers should not take it wrongly or discouragingly when we are reminded what we were under a state of sin and unbelief. 
That should not be discouraging to us at all. And this is common with Paul in his preaching. And, and let's look at 1 Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. I said we have several verses to look at, and so we'll, we'll do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9. And so the principle, the second point being is that we as believers should not take it wrongly or discouragingly when we are reminded by the preaching of God's word what we were when under a state of sin and unbelief. Okay? And Paul does that frequently. He's doing it here in Colossians. You used to be sons of disobedience. You used to live in them and walk that way. Here in 1 Corinthians, look at this. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Important question. Now, now, I, now I want you to think about that for a minute. Let that sink in for a second. Just, just step back for a moment, and I want you to think about that part of that verse. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But pastor, my neighbor is the nicest person you have ever would want to meet. Uh, my, my, my relatives, they're so sweet and so kind. They would give me the shirt off of their backs. Oh, my. They, they are good people. But friend... Look what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a sobering thought. That ought to arrest you. That ought to give you pause. That ought to be a verse that causes you to, like in the cartoons, when someone stops and they just skid with their heels. And, and it's just alarming. You, you say to yourself, praise be to God. I am no longer there. Rejoice in that. And it ought to give you a great burden for the lost. Do not be deceived. Now look at this. Do not be deceived. There are a lot of people out there trying to deceive you today to think that what Paul is saying here is not true. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. Does this list, list, list sound familiar to you again? Out of Colossians 3, 5. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, you know what that means, nor idolaters, you know what that means, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Oh, that's, a, that's an important word. Oh, my. Men who want to act like women, men who have more feminine characteristics and manly characteristics who embrace and reject the creative design and purpose of a man? I'm sorry, but that's what it means. And I know some translations have taken that out. Shame on them. That word is there in the original language. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. That's a good list. That's a, that's a long list. It's hard to get out of that list. We'll inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going. They're not going. Verse 11. 
the idea that we are to be reminded and not take it wrongly, Paul says what? Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Praise his name. Amen. So Paul here, again, it's nothing wrong with being reminded of what we were when under a state of sin and unbelief, such were some of you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 to make this point, to continue to make this point. It's a bad thing when the pastor covers up the clock with his notes. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Look what Paul does. Now, now again, what Paul is doing in Colossians is important. He's, he's, he's giving them a reason for gospel gratitude. Knowing that people who have gospel gratitude are going to be people who are going to live in a manner that reflects the gratitude. You're going to mortify sins. You're going to be cheerful givers. You're going to give out of gratitude. You're going to exercise your spiritual gifts with other people in the church. You're going to love the church. All of that is part and parcel of gospel gratitude. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, Therefore, what does he say? Remember. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Now, there's a lot to say about this, of course, eschatologically and otherwise. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which was performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me just say this. So, it does not mean that the Gentiles become Jews or that the Gentiles become Israel. But there is a spiritual picture in play here. God's intended purpose for the nation of Israel was for it to have a global impact with regard to the message of his word. And as the redeemed of God, so there's a spiritual picture, if you will, of, of, of the church in Israel. The church is the most important thing. We are the bride of Christ. There are Jews and Gentiles alike who are saved and brought in to that church. And the church is fulfilling ultimately that which was intended originally by God for the nation of Israel. And so in the spiritual context, we now fulfill that. And the Gentiles are brought into that and are embraced by God in the context of those promises. And as a result of that, we now receive and are the beneficiaries of all of that. And indeed, are are not our numbers as numerous as the sands on the seashore? I mean, God has blessed the preaching of the gospel in his churches. And every tribe, tongue, and nation is hearing the message of the gospel. How is that possible? Well, we'll talk more about that someday. <clears throat> Gird up your loins. Uh, remember 
that you were at that time separate from Christ, verse 12, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, so there's that once but now motif. This is an encouragement to us. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Wow. Well, there's a lot there. But again, the idea here being is this. We should not take it wrongly or discouragingly when we are reminded what we were when under a state of sin and unbelief. Paul does it repeatedly. 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, Colossians 3. The early church father Tertullian aptly noted, I am not ashamed of the error from which I am now free because I feel that I am become better. And of course he was better. He was far better. He was in Christ and that's what he meant. The third benefit that we see from this passage in Colossians is that the redeemed of Christ receive a twofold advantage from a reminder of this kind. There's a twofold advantage to being reminded of who we once were. First, we are encouraged to have an attitude of gratitude, gospel gratitude, as we reflect on the fact that we have not been changed by the power of free will but by the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit. This is evident throughout Scripture. Um, Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 13. That's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Jeremiah 13, 23. Again, so the redeemed receive a twofold advantage from a reminder of this type that Paul is using here. First, we are encouraged to have an attitude of gratitude as we reflect on the fact that we have not been changed by the power of free will. Listen, friend, you did not save yourself. God saved you. What do dead people do? Nothing. They stink, of course, but they don't do anything else. And dead means dead in the Bible. Go back to Colossians chapter 2. Paul talks about it at length. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. He spells it out clearly for us. We are saved and changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopardous spots? Just answer the question, can they? No. Why not? Why can't the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Because his skin is the color that it is by nature. He was born that way. 
Why can't the leopard change his spots? Because he was born that way. He is by nature an animal that has spots. So look what happens in the balance of that passage. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What Jeremiah is teasing out there that, and he's writing to people who are engaged in a lot of nonsense and bad behavior and sin, he is saying that that's only going to change if something else changes you. That's who you were. That change only comes by and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans, if you will. Romans 6.17. Romans 6.17. Romans 6.17. Again, the idea here being that there's a twofold advantage from a reminder of this type that we find in Colossians and And by Paul, reminding us of who we were, we're encouraged to have an attitude of gratitude. And we see that by being reminded of the truth that's contained in Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God. Thanks, right? But thanks be to God. We'll go back to verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be! Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Paul there painting a very vivid picture of what should lend itself to a great sense of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. Secondly, and we can look at 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 13, if you want to go to that passage and jot it down in your notes in your own time. Again, Paul speaking of himself and his, his, his being freed from the bondage of sin. Paul here teasing out the idea that not not only is the mercy of God necessary when we repent, but also that we may repent. (laughs) Do you understand that? Not only is the mercy of God necessary when we repent, but also that we may repent. You can't repent. You can't turn to Christ without God's mercy. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? You cannot turn to God without his mercy. Transforming grace, right? So, we are to be, secondly, another benefit of encouragement. We are excited about our new life. For new life speaks to new abilities to serve Christ with joy and gladness of heart. We are not what we once were, which drives us to live in a new manner of life. Believing new doctrines, we now perform new works. That's what Paul is ultimately saying. Cyprian, another early church father, said this, to put on the name of Christ and not to walk by the way of Christ 
What is that but to toy with God? And that's very true. And so we read this passage from Paul in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Through 14, Romans 13, 12 through 14. Let's go back to 11. Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Ephesians 5.8, turn there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Again, by way of reminder, Paul gives us reasons to be grateful. Ephesians 5.8, or back to verse 7 for context. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is even disgraceful to speak of things which are done by them in secret. And so again, by contrast, Paul gives us reasons to be joyful and to delight. And so finally, with regard to the new state of the converted and regenerate, we make this final and fourth observation we see the difference between the regenerate and unregenerate. The regenerate may fall into sin, but they do not habitually walk, neither can they live in sin because of what Paul says, because of what Christ has done for us. Why is that? Yes, Christians sin. Sometimes we sin super big and super bad. The righteous man falls seven times. We've talked about that. But the pattern of our lives, the conduct of our lives, is to be in conformity with the new spirit that indwells us, to walk in the spirit. If you are indwelt by the spirit, walk in the spirit. And do it out of joyful gratefulness for what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's what Paul is driving home for us here in Colossians. Reminding us of who we once were in verse 6 and in verse 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And so for us, out of gospel gratitude, we live for the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be antithetical, contrary to who we are, to say that we're the redeemed of God and to live like the world. 
to embrace what the world embraces, to exemplify the world as the proper mode to be followed, as an example. No, friends, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are new creation. And so when we rest in Christ, obedience becomes our joy, not our dread. We see that glorifying our Father to be a worthy effort, not a means of earning favor. Do you see this? Remember, only Christ earned favor with the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We get to rest in that. You may say, well, Pastor, I'm a weary saint. Well, that may very well be the case. Sometimes you become weary. Sometimes life is very hard. Sometimes life is very discouraging. It's often in those times that we find ourselves in places that we ought not to be, that we slip into sin and that we become ensnared in the fowler's net. But I can tell you for sure, for one thing, Jesus Christ never became weary. He never got snared in the fowler's net. He always lived for us perfectly, perfectly. And so when I think about that, that's what causes me to move forward for Christ. I rest in his finished work. And it's good to be reminded of who we once were. Because if you forget it, it's not likely you're going to be very joyful about who you now are. Right? Who are you? You're called saints in the Bible. Holy ones. Holy ones. Set apart by Christ to be salt and light. Let's do that. Let's rest in his finished work. Let's rejoice in what Christ has done. Let's be people who are at rest in Christ and living gratefully and joyfully for him. Gospel gratitude is what causes me to do the things that I'm called to do in Scripture. To flee immorality, to kill sin, to not be angry, to not engage in abusive speech. I do those not to become saved, but as a result of my salvation. And knowing that it's pleasing to the Lord, whom I love beyond all treasure and all earthly possessions. That's why we do what we do. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Live like it, believe it, and rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for these great reminders that we have in Scripture. Thank you for giving us passages that amplify the difference between who we once were but what we now are in Jesus Christ. May these reminders always be fresh in our minds. May we not forget them, um, but to be overwhelmed with gratitude and gratefulness for the fact that we are no longer what we once were. No longer children of darkness, but now the children of light. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Christ, my Redeemer, has paid the penalty for my sin. He died for me. He took away your wrath. He carried it as far as the east is from the west. I rejoice that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you so very much for all that you have done for us. We praise you and rejoice in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. God bless you.